Good morning. So Christmas is over. Who's excited about that? No more Christmas shopping. Um, but uh, New Year's almost upon us, and so that means uh, New Year's resolutions, right? So have you made your New Year's resolution? Have you figured out what you're going to change this year? Um, and, you know, if you're like me, then you make a New Year's resolution, and it lasts about maybe two minutes or two days, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of back to routine, right? Um, so I have a question. As you think about the new year, and as you think about maybe making these resolutions, here's a question I have for you to think about, and, and this is something I'm thinking about too. Do we believe that God can change us? Do we believe, do we really believe that God can change us? What about the people in our lives that we long to see know Jesus? Do we believe that they can be different than who they are right now. Bob was a big Finnish guy from Quincy. He worked in the shipyard. He had a problem with alcohol. He got in a lot of fights. Uh, you know, kind of a guy that was rough around the edges a little bit. His wife became a Christian, and uh, she started praying for Bob, that God would transform his life. And her church started praying for Bob as well. And the pastor of her church tried to corner Bob on many occasions, but he absolutely despised the gospel. He didn't want anything to do with the church. In fact, one day, one time, he, he saw the pastor coming up to his house, and he ran into the ba- bathroom. He climbed out the back of the, the bathroom window, hid in the woods until the pastor left. Right? So he, he really didn't want anything to do with Jesus or the church. But one day, the preacher, you know, he finally corners Bob and uh, he, he, he pushes Bob to read a particular passage of Scripture. He says, Bob, read this passage, and I want you to tell me, what does this passage mean to you? So Bob reads the passage, and he says, it means nothing to me. So the pastor says, no, Bob, I want you to read this passage again. Read it again out loud. What does this verse mean to you? And so Bob reads it again, and he says, nothing. It means nothing to me. So the third time the pastor says, Bob, I want you to read this passage carefully. Think about these words. What does this passage mean to you? And this time, something supernatural happened. You know, the blinders were taken off his eyes. He could see for the first time clearly. He was instantly transformed and converted third time reading the same passage. And this started a you know, dramatic change in his life. He stopped drinking. He joined this church. He became a member. He's still a little rough around the edges. One time he was at the dockyard and someone took the Lord's name in vain and he just cold cocked the guy. You know, just boom, dropped him. And, uh, you know, the pastor had to counsel him and say, okay, you know, like your enthusiasm, but, you know. And after he became a Christian, You know, his heart was so tender, his heart was so supple, that whenever someone would tell him about Jesus, he would cry. Do we believe that God can change us like this? Do we believe that God can change people in our lives who don't know Jesus like this? Family members who are hostile to the gospel about our schools or neighborhoods, and we think, man, I don't, I don't think God's going to do anything here. 
We wonder whether God is really at work in our families and offices and neighborhoods. We say that God can save anyone like Bob, but do we really believe that? So what are the relationships, the situations, the the people in your life where you've mentally given up on them? You've mentally ceded ground. I don't think God's doing anything there. Can you think of people? Can you think of situations, places where you've done that? A passage we're going to study, Acts chapter 8, it builds up our confidence in God's power to break new ground. That's what this chapter is all about. It's a very long chapter. There's a lot going on in this chapter. We're not going to be able to tackle every uh, bit in the chapter. But that's the main idea. God is breaking new ground. So turn to Acts chapter 8. It's page 1085 in your pewed Bible. We're in the middle of the book of Acts. It's a story about, of the, about the birth of the church. In the last few chapters, we've seen how things have gone from bad to worse uh, for the early church that's in Jerusalem. The church has been established. It's been growing. Opposition to the church has also been growing. And so here we are. In chapter 7, Stephen, who is one of the leaders of the church, was killed. So what happens next? That's what we're going to read. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word. Wherever they went, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of, uh, on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. 
For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And Philip with that very passage of, began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. That's a lot of scripture. Thank you, Jeremy. All right, let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you and we confess to you that we cannot understand this passage without the help of your spirit, and so we ask that you would give us illumination this morning so that we can understand this passage and then apply it to our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So chapter 8 is all about the gospel breaking new ground, new places, with new hearts. In the last few chapters, things, uh, again, have gotten from bad to worse, but here we see the gospel breaking new ground, first in Samaria, and then we see the gospel breaking ground in the hearts of Simon the sorcerer and this Ethiopian eunuch. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Do you remember the last words that Jesus said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 before he ascended to heaven? Let me read his last words to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's what happens in Acts chapter 1. It's a description of the Holy Spirit's power coming upon these disciples who are scared and they're waiting. They're wondering what's going to happen next. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. Then Jesus says, you, disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. This is described, describing Acts chapter 2 through 7. 
And all the things that happened in Jerusalem as, as God not only sent his spirit upon these disciples, but they started proclaiming Christ. And the church was established. Opposition to the church grew as well in those chapters. But he, he said, he didn't stop there. He, didn't, he, he said, you're going to be my witnesses not only in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses also in Judea and Samaria. And that's where chapter 8 picks up. That's what we start to see happening here in chapter 8. So God is in the business of breaking new ground in new places with new people, with new hearts. That's what he's in the business of doing, and that's what we see here in this chapter. And so what I want to do with the remainder of our time together is I want to uh, give you three ways from this chapter, three ways we see God breaking new ground. Okay? So here's the first way. The first four verses, God uses persecution and hardship to break new ground. God uses persecution and hardship. I mentioned already there's kind of two um, simultaneous tracks that run through the book of Acts. First, opposition to the church. It's been growing as we've been reading and studying this book. You've seen that. But the second track is that even though there's opposition to the church, the church itself is continuing to grow, not only numerically, but growing in influence. So these two things are happening, and we see it happening here in this chapter as well. Look at the description of what happens after uh, Stephen was killed in verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And then look at verse uh, 3. House to house, there were people, men and women, being dragged off to prison. So this persecution, this was not you know, a bunch of hyped-up rioters. This was a methodical, carefully thought-out attack against God's church. But notice what happens as a result of this great hardship in the church. Look at verse 1 again. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered, what did they do? They preached the gospel. They preached the word wherever they went. So not only were people scattered, but as these Christians went to different parts of the Roman Empire, the gospel and the power that accompanied the gospel went with them. And this makes me think of the persecution uh, of Christians in Syria and northern Iraq. You've heard about this, I'm sure, on the news the last several years. Christians that are now traveling around in roving bands, finding shelter in mountain caves and uh, you know, uh, makeshift refugee camps. Awful, terrible conditions, an awful situation. We wouldn't want any Christian to experience what they are experiencing right now. But you kind of wonder where the gospel is going now because they're going to new places too, right? Maybe some of these uh, you know, nomadic mountain peoples who have never heard about Jesus now because of this suffering and persecution They've heard about Jesus. And that's what happened with the early church as well. So here's the key point I'm trying to make. This is all part of God's plan. This persecution, this suffering is all part of God's plan. This was how God was going to break new ground in Samaria and in Judea. He used persecution and hardship 
and he does it today as well. He does it with us in the 21st century here on the south shore of Boston. He uses trials in our lives. Sometimes God has to kind of shake us up to see others around us that he wants us to reach out to. God wants us to break new ground. But, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we're very comfortable in our little Jerusalem, right? We're comfortable in our Jerusalem. We enjoy the conveniences and the steady life that we've built in our Jerusalem. Everything around us is safe and secure. And then all of a sudden, God delivers some pain or some confusion or the death of a loved one. And all of a sudden, we're we're forced to look elsewhere and look outside ourselves. When I went through some discouragement and dark nights of the soul in my 20s, my dad passed away in 2009 unexpectedly. Uh, Those were uh, some very painful times. But nothing has pulled me out of my navel-gazing than those trials. And if we're going to be a a church that's on mission with the gospel, if we're going to engage people with the gospel, if we're going to give the gospel person to person, we're going to need to look up, we're going to need to look out a little bit. And sometimes God ordains trials and pain to push us in that direction. Suffering not only gets us to look outwards, but it puts us in new places with new people. You remember this story that Pastor Jeremy told of our uh, youth pastor, Pete DeAngelis. He, um, he was playing basketball, and he came down in a, in a weird kind of angle, and he broke his ankle, um, or he, he did something crazy to his ankle. It used to look like this, and all of a sudden it was looking like this, right? So crazy, he goes to the hospital, and they're like, okay, that's not normal. We have to do something about this. So he's sitting there on the hospital bed. He's in just a, a lot of pain. Morphine's barely touching his pain. And uh, there he is, and, and a nurse comes up to him, and they start talking. And Pete, in the midst of his pain, as he's enduring this pain, he tells this nurse about Jesus. And she's listening to him, and she's watching him with his foot like this. She starts to cry. Suffering is a megaphone for the gospel. Pain is a megaphone for the gospel. It amplifies the message we bring. It projects the message into new places with new people. Have you ever talked with someone who's being persecuted for the gospel? Or someone who's uh, clinging to Jesus in the midst of a trial? You know, you're going to find real sweetness and tenderness. You're going to find a depth and a closeness to Jesus and a love for Christ that is really unparalleled. It's so magnetic, right? It just draws you in. It makes you want to listen. What do they have to say? There's somewhere where I've never been before with Jesus. They're walking, the, the va- they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But he's with them. Michael Gary was a dear brother here at South Shore Baptist Church who battled cancer and he passed away fairly recently. He was a brother that touched so many of us in this church including me. And, uh, you know, we were at men's retreat, and I'll never forget this scene. Uh, Friday night, just weeks before he passed away, I believe. And there he was. He was sitting, you know, in front of this big roaring fire. 
And uh, there was about a dozen men, all different ages, sitting around him, listening to him. He walked with Jesus even to the very end, and so, of course, we were eager to listen. Pain is a megaphone for the gospel. So if God has ordained a season of suffering or a season of persecution for you, brothers, sisters, uh, let the early church's example encourage you. Perhaps God is trying to shake up things in your life and get you into new places with new people. He's, he's giving you a mic. He's, he's setting up a platform for you to speak from. And people are watching. They're watching you. They're wondering, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you, you going to say? New people in your life. So what are you going to say when you're persecuted for Jesus or you're suffering some hardship? What will you say in those moments? So the first point, God breaks new ground by bringing, intentionally bringing persecution and suffering into our lives. Here's the second point. God overcomes worldly powers. God overcomes worldly powers. We see this in verses 5 through 25. Here we see the gospel, as I've said earlier, breaking new ground in Samaria. Right? This is a new place. Now, this sounds pretty reasonable to us. You know, Jesus is you know, kind of an inclusive guy. He's available to all different kinds of peoples. And so here he is in this new, with this new people group as, the, uh, as Philip is preaching the gospel there. But to the Jews, this is crazy. The Jews were the only people of God. They were God's chosen people for hundreds of years. These Samaritans, they were half Jews and half Gentiles. They were dogs to the Jews. Of course, Jesus totally redirected that in his lifetime and in his teaching. Do you remember? He sat by the well of this Samaritan woman and he engaged with her and he loved her and he told her, hey, do you want some living water? It was unheard of. It was crazy. You don't talk to a woman in public, let alone a Samaritan woman in public in the first century. But Jesus did. He told a parable about the Good Samaritan where the hero of the story, it's not a Jew, it's not a Pharisee, it's not one of the religious elite. It's a Samaritan. One of these dogs, right? And then just before he left, he told his disciples, hey, this gospel... This gospel is going to go to them as well. And they're going to be part of your people, the new people of God, the church. Pretty cool stuff. But that's not what this passage focuses on. This section, of course, really focuses on this guy named Simon, right? Simon the sorcerer. Look at verse 9 through 11. Let's read about Simon. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. So what do we know about Simon the sorcerer? Well, he's a Samaritan. He was a sorcerer. He was practicing some sort of divine supernatural magic. It's probably dark magic. We know it wasn't divine power. He was really influential. Not only did he think himself great, but everybody else in town thought he was awesome. He's a sort of local celebrity, right? 
And he was probably practicing this magic, this sorcery, so he can gain maybe money or prestige, maybe a, a, a place in the local government. It's all about Simon. But it was not divine power that he was wielding. And if it was not divine power he was wielding, then it was demonic power. It was worldly power. That sounds kind of crazy, you know, demonic powers. Are demonic powers at work today? Yes. Demonic powers are at work today. Evil forces are at work today. And they're often, just like here in this story, they're often, often masquerading themselves as something positive and good. It's not difficult to, to, to walk around the South Shore, drive around the South Shore, or turn your TV on, and to see advertisements for things like psychic mediums, tarot card readers, right? You have seen Angels of Light in Norwell? Have you seen that? I think it's on 53. You get on their website and you start reading, and you're like, wow, this sounds pretty good. These are good people and they have good intentions. But all of a sudden you realize, wait, these folks, they seem to have access to some sort of power But it's not through Jesus. It's not the power of the Spirit. And therefore, what kind of power is it? It's demonic power. Here on the South Shore. There's other kinds of powers that are influencing us as well. Maybe a little bit more subtly influencing us. Worldly powers. You think about the cultural attitudes that are antagonistic to the Christian gospel today. You know, different values and perspectives and attitudes that are anti-God or anti-Christ. Those are demonic forces as well. The attitude of tolerance. You know, valuing personal preference over, over and against any kind of submission to a God. You know, you look around and you see the general moral breakdown of society. The rampant promiscuity that's going on. Addictions, maybe in, in our lives, lives of other people. Extreme narcissism in people. You look at these people that are narcissistic and there's like a shell around them and, and nobody can point out to them that, man, they're, they're just living totally for themselves. They don't see it and oftentimes the people around them don't see it. This is demonic. These kinds of hostile forces and attitudes, they're working in the hearts, not only in our own hearts at times, but in the hearts of our friends and our neighbors and our family members. And so it makes it hard, when we see this happening, it makes it hard to proclaim Christ. We're scared. We look around and we think, there's no way this guy's going to change. There's no way she's going to you know, get outside of herself and see Jesus. So we go after some low-hanging fruit, whatever that means. But Simon the sorcerer wasn't low-hanging fruit. So we see here in the story, picking up in the story again, Philip comes onto the scene in verses 12 and 13. A greater power shows up, right? Revival comes in Samaria. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. What happened to Simon? Here it is, verse 13. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So Simon was wielding this worldly demonic power. His heart was hardened and twisted and bent in on himself 
All he could see was himself. Now, all of a sudden, God's power begins to break through all of that. God's power is greater than any worldly power. Do you believe that? Is there anybody here who's listened to the band? Korn, K-O-R-N. Anybody? Raise your hand. It's okay. My hand's raised. What a bunch of pagans. Man. Yeah, Korn. So um, they're an uh, interesting <laughs> band that were, was really influential in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, uh, you know, okay, let me, let me read to you what the Chicago Tribune described them as. And this is a little harsh, but it just gives you a little flavor. Korn... It's made up of perverts, psychopaths, and paranoiacs. Okay, so again, a little harsh, but it just gives you... This is not family-friendly music, right? It's not PG. They were influenced by the world's powers, and they were influencing others through their music. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, nobody saw this coming. Brian Welch, who's a member of Korn, becomes a Christian. The press release on their website, this is several years ago, this is what it said. It said, Corn parted ways with Brian Welch, who has chosen the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and will be dedicating his musical pursuits to that end. This is, this is crazy. Nobody saw this coming. In fact, people, when they read this, they thought this was a publicity stunt. It's got to be a joke. And a couple days later, he was in front of his church, and he was proclaiming Christ, and he got baptized and from what I know, he's still walking with Jesus. Brian Welch. If God can change a member of Corn, right, one of the most provocative and worldly bands in the late 90s and early 2000s, he can surely change any of us. That's because God's power overcomes any kind of worldly power that is out there. What would it look like, brothers and sisters, if we truly believed if we truly believe that God's power is greater than any worldly power? Would it change the way we evangelized? Would it, would it give us courage so that we'll be more bold? Would it change and transform the way we prayed? If we believe God's power is greater and can overcome any barrier, if we truly believe that, yes, it would change us. So the first two points... God breaks new ground, uses persecution and suffering to do that. And as we're there, as we're we're in the midst of breaking new ground with the Lord, we can be confident that his power is greater than any worldly power. It's the second point. And here's the third point. God works through his word. God works through his word. You see this in verses 26 through 40. This story about the Ethiopian. Now, once again, there's a lot in this passage, but I want us to focus on the centrality of God's word in breaking new ground. That's what I want us to focus on for the last few minutes here. So God leaves Philip to the south road that leads to Gaza. This is a very dry and dusty road, and uh, he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch there. Now, so who is this guy? Look at verse 27. So he, Philip, started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. 
This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Interesting situation, right? So what do we know about this guy? Well, he's an important financial advisor to the queen of Ethiopia, so he's likely well-educated, he's accomplished. We know he was wealthy because he owned this chariot, and later it says that somebody else was drawing this chariot for him, right? So he had other servants. There's probably, you know, if you can picture this, there were carts that were behind him that were kind of lugging in his luggage behind the chariot. Um, he had money to buy this Isaiah scroll, and uh, so there he is. He's wealthy, he's accomplished, he's well-educated. He worshipped in Jerusalem, so he was likely either a, an Ethiopian convert to Judaism or a Jew that lived in Ethiopia. And he was at the top of his game in Ethiopia, right? At the top of the kingdom, financial advisor to the queen. Sophisticated, accomplished, wealthy, reading Isaiah. And along comes Philip, our faithful evangelist. And these verses that he's reading, you see in verses 32 and 33, he's reading from Isaiah. These verses, they are from Isaiah 53. So I want you to put your thumb here. We're going to turn to Isaiah 53. So turn to Isaiah 53 with me. We're going to see what he was reading. Isaiah 53, it's page 731 in your pew Bible. And he was reading verse 7 and 8. So we're going to read these verses first to see what he was probably thinking and feeling, this Ethiopian. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants, for he was cut off from the land of the living. That's what he was focusing on. So these verses that he, that he read, they point to a dignified victim who was unjustly killed, a dignified victim who surrendered himself without protest for some unknown reason. That's where he's at right now. That's what he's got right now. So, of course, he's confused. Now, who is this guy who was shamed and slaughtered without protest? Who is this guy? Well, Isaiah explained to him. And to explain, we need to look at the context of this passage. So I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. He, this suffering servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. Suffering servant. Who's this guy? He's unattractive. He didn't draw attention. He was rejected. He was despised. He was very familiar with suffering. 
He took our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. By his wounds we are healed. Who is this guy? He was unjustly punished without protest. He died for the sins of all who have gone astray. And so Philip turns to this Ethiopian and says, this guy's Jesus. That's who you're reading about. Don't be confused. This servant, this Jesus, would offer himself without protest as a sacrifice in place of sinful people. This Jesus would remove the guilt of God's people by this sacrifice, and so God's people would be blessed. This is Jesus. I wish I could see the look on the Ethiopian's face when Philip told him this. And look what happens next. Go back to Acts. I'm going to finish up our story here. Go back to Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 36. What happens next? As they traveled along the road, they came to, to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip was baptized. You can feel the energy and kind of the immediacy of what was happening here. This wasn't a long, drawn-out process. This guy listened to Philip explain to him uh, uh, Isaiah 53. He got into this chariot. They were driving down the road, maybe a couple miles. We don't know. And he was changed instantly. The power of God broke through his hardened heart. He believed and he was baptized. This is the power of the gospel. This is the power of God's word to accomplish the work of God. We see it here. And I know many of us in this room, we've seen it in our lives. The word of God does the work of God. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? You know, my buddy uh, Nico in Michigan, he, he was a, uh, just, a, just a really gregarious guy, really enjoyable to be around. You would enjoy Nico. And, um, you know, Nico and I would get together and, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great times. And it was kind of an enjoy, enjoyable environment for other people to, to come and, and, and be with us. And so, you know, I, I thought back in Michigan, you know, if, if only my non-Christian friends can spend some time with Nico and I, they would eventually see the light. Because we were, we were so cool and we were so interesting and we were so engaging. Now, I had good intentions behind that thought, but, man, I was trusting something other than God's word to break the new, new ground in the hearts of my friends. I was trusting me. I was trusting my social abilities and Nico's social abilities. And this is something we do, don't we? We're tempted to do these kinds of things. We trust things more than we trust the power of the gospel to break new ground. And so we we trust our personalities. We trust our personal charm. We trust our our humor. Maybe we trust the social circles that we live in. And so we think, hey, if if only this this friend of mine can can come and hang out with my, my social circle. We trust our intellectual abilities or our persuasive, uh, you know, our, our skills to persuade people. Maybe we trust the clean, attractive church program that we offer here at South Shore Baptist Church. A beautiful building. Very nice people. A thoughtfully put together worship service. A great kids program downstairs. And these are all really good things, all of them. 
But real, lasting power only comes through God's word and spirit. It's the word of God that accomplishes the work of God. Do you believe that? In your heart of hearts, what are you trusting to transform people? Are you trusting your social networks, your personal charm, your personalities, your intellectual abilities? Are you trusting the word of God? What about your, your own life? What are you trusting to change you as you come into this new year, as you think about uh, you know, the resolutions that you may, may, may be making? What are you trusting? It's not therapy or behavior management or medicine that's going to change your heart. It's not the right friends or the right education. It's not the quest to, to actualize yourself or find yourself that's going to change you the way I know you all want to be changed. It's the word of God that does the work of God in your life. So let me give you two fairly obvious practical exhortations that flow out of this idea. If the word does the work, then first of all, it means getting into the word every day. If this is where we engage with Jesus, if this is where we can get life, if you want to find grace for your Monday morning and grace for your Tuesday evening, you're going to engage with this book and worship Christ through this book, no other place. Secondly, it means that we're going to be building relationships with people inside and outside the church and loving them and helping them to understand what the Bible says, just like Philip did. We're moving towards people who don't know Christ and saying, hey, can we read the Bible together? I don't have the words of life. He does. Can we read the Bible together? Can I help you understand what this book is saying about Jesus? So just to review, we're coming to a close here. Three ways God's power breaks new ground in this chapter. First, he uses hardship and suffering in our life. Secondly, He overcomes worldly powers, including demonic forces. And thirdly, he works uniquely, especially through his word. God used Sasha Baptist Church to break new ground on the South Shore, starting in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. God used this church to break new ground in hearts of people, like that big Finnish Quincy guy, Bob McDonald. It's part of this church's fellowship. Bob started out like this Ethiopian, tender-hearted and eager to learn about Christ when he was first a Christian. But then he became like Philip, a humble conduit of God's grace to others. And here we are today, decades later, and God is calling this church, he's calling us to break new ground on the South Shore not in our own strength, but in God's power and with his word, trusting that he can overcome any kind of worldly power. So let's go back to the question we asked earlier. You know, what are the relationships? Who are the people in your life, the situations, the places where you've given up because you doubt that God can actually do something there? Can you think of those people? Be encouraged today, brothers and sisters. God can do it. So keep praying for those spouses that don't know Jesus. Keep praying for your wayward kids. Keep praying for your brothers and sisters and neighbors and and coworkers that are antagonistic to the gospel. God is in the business of breaking new ground, even in the hardest hearts. 
He can do it. He did it in Simon the Sorcerer. He did it in Bob McDonald. He did it in me. And he did it in many of you. Let's pray. Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. And surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we consider Jesus punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you're not a disciple of Christ, then I believe that this passage is God's word to you this morning. He wants you to know this Jesus, that he was pierced for sinners. He wants you to know that if you repent and believe in this Jesus, you will be forgiven and you will have new life. So don't delay. Let today be the day that you trust this Jesus with your life. It's so worth it. Father, we come before you, and as we prepare for communion, help us to reflect upon these words about Jesus. Help us to worship him. Father, may our hearts be stirred. May our lives be changed by your power. As we look outside, Lord, give us great confidence that your power can overcome all things, and that your word accomplishes the work. Give us great confidence in the work that you are doing on the south shore amongst those who don't know you. Grip us with this reality, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.